Thank you, Seth, and thank you for that word. And I don't know, and I, I, I feel this way more than I have in my life. I don't know what people do, first, without Jesus, and second, what they do without a good church. And in this place, we've got both, and much to praise the Lord for. Um, David Brown, by the way, if you're wondering where he is, he's in the Dominican Republic. He's fled the country <laughs> to be with his family and his grandchildren. And uh, we look forward to an update there uh, when him and Kim return. But this morning, we pick up where we left off last time in the book of Esther. And today, we finally see some of these things that have been stewing for weeks and weeks finally see resolution. Uh, in other words, today's passage is a happy passage. We start off singing, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Uh, we're going to end with a promising song. And the passage that we read here ends uh, on a rejoicing type of a, of, of a sentiment. Haven't seen that yet. And as we read through this here in a moment, I want you to look for it. Because Esther opened with a outlandish, extravagant, over-the-top party of people who did not know the one true God. And excess was on display for all to see by chapter Three, power was given to a man who had a grudge against one Jew and had written into law their extermination orders. As we move through the remainder of those chapters up until today, we see that things started to settle out. Haman was hanged last week. Some of us got quite a bit of relief to hear that news. But it's not quite time for a celebration. Well, by the end of this chapter, the celebration has come, though there's much to do. There's a few chapters left. But let me begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 8. We'll ask the Lord for some help in understanding and obeying, but we begin with His Word. Verse 1, chapter 8, book of Esther. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And then the king took off the signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Verse 3, Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are all in all the provinces of the king." For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman 
And they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and the seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials in the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province its own script, to each people its own language, and also to the Jew in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of the king Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods." On the one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what is written is to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king commanded and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This is God's Word. Chapter 8. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We thank you for Sunday morning, open Bibles, a room full of brothers and sisters in Christ, the prospect of sitting at your feet as students, and the promise of you through your Holy Spirit to open the Scriptures to our understanding. Lord, may that be true, and may we be willing to obey where we need to change to be more like you. We thank you for this day, your grace, your mercy, your watch care, your instruction. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. I had the occasion earlier this week, just a few days ago, uh, to set up a new phone. I still have the same number. This is actually for someone else in the family, but when you do that... It's more complex than it used to be, but it always seems to start the same way. You turn it on, and then you choose a language. That's a big deal. We usually only speak one of those. And even if someone knew more than one, I think they set it to one. I don't know that you can go back and forth. But we call language 
the words we use and the definitions behind them and it's for the purpose of communicating to one another. The most helpful part of a language is when the group of people using it all agree on the same definitions. It gets a little different when the definition changes. That's why you can move from one location in the United States to another and find out that some words are used differently than they're used from where you came from. And this is greatly compounded if you fly over the pond and you're in Europe in English-speaking countries and you find that there's different definitions for these things. Sometimes we even use words less rigidly than their definitions would imply but rather casually and we apply to these words functional definitions that most of us know what we're saying though it really has little to do with the word's purpose itself. I'll give you an example. The word straightened. If you look that up in a dictionary it probably has to do with taking something that was crooked or bent or warped and the process of straightening that out to where it's straight rather than crooked or warped or bent. If my father used that word with that definition, he used that word a hundred times to say something like this to me. Hey, did you get that straightened out? The, the problem, uh, that issue. So we're using a word euphemistically to describe a problem that needs solving, right? In chapter 8 of Esther, things get straightened out, sorted out. The problem's resolved. The issue is no more. And in our lives, maybe a problem surfaces at breakfast, and hopefully by the end of the day we have it sorted out. Those are small things. But while we're reading this about a girl named Esther, whose adoptive father, her cousin, was Mordecai, and a king whose name was Ahasuerus or Xerxes or just the king if you forget the names. While we're reading that and watching how things are straightened out, I want us to be thinking through the whole message that spiritually speaking and eternally speaking, this book tells us how to straighten out a problem in our lives that surfaced in a garden called Eden and without Jesus will never be straightened out. The purpose of today is one, celebration. Because the people, exiles in Persia, Jews, now do no longer live under the impending doom. And at the same time, those who trust Jesus Christ as their personal Savior now no longer live under the condemnation of the wrath of God. Because Jesus, his son, has straightened out their situation. Now the reason why this makes for a good story, and the reason why this seems to be just standard equipment in the way that we think, the way that we do things, uh, the way that we enjoy entertainment or literature, is every human being knows that things should be straightened out. You, you don't leave things in a mess, a problem, conflict. Uh, there's a, 
There's reasons why our government has laws that take reams and reams and reams of paper to explain. But at the same time, you, I, and whoever's near you knows that it's wrong to break line at Walmart. Right? And this is where a story like Esther is a great story for Sunday school with children because the story is dramatic. And we like this type of story. It starts out with, with all these options and opportunity, but then it quickly gets complicated. There's something wrong. Conflict begins to rise. Then usually there's some push toward resolution and a lot of times, and this can almost be seen a mile away when you're watching television, the solution fails at the last minute, but then someone comes in from the side or whatever with the combination or the key or some superpower and puts it right back and everything's fine. Things get straightened out. And this is the way we like our stories because this is the way God made us. Uh, If you watched or read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and Narnia Stayed Frozen, would you say, that's a great book? No! I'm thinking, I don't know, have you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Okay, let's, let's... How about if the Ring of Power was not thrown back into Mount Doom? Would you like the Lord of the Rings? All right. If they didn't blow up three Death Stars in a row to make sure that the rebellion succeeded against the evil empire in Star Wars, even if they blew the first one up when you were eight and the last one when you were 38, that's why you like that movie, because you need to straighten out that empire and blow up those Death Stars because they're wrong. And everybody, from a a child who's learning to talk to someone who's almost to glory, we know that things have to be straightened out. So this fits, and it fits our understanding of the cross. So let's work our way through these and make some points along the way. But that's your, your premise, the big idea up front before we get too far. Look at verse 1 again on... Uh, Chapter 8 there. On that day, king gave Esther the house of Haman. So Haman was impaled on a pole last chapter. Well, now everything he had, and he, he was second in command, is given to the queen. Uh, he's described as the enemy of the Jews here. And then Mordecai, uh, we learn that Esther tells the king what he was to her. Then the king takes off the signet ring that he took from Haman, the signet ring that was used to write the first edict that spelled Israel's doom. Now that ring is given to Mordecai. And then Esther sets Mordecai over the house of Haman. So that's two verses full of quite a truckload of reversals. A lot of straightening out going there. The issue in chapter 8 is to find a way, though, to reverse the decree against the Jews. Because we talked about this when the chapter 3, when the decree was made. According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, you can never reverse a law because it would imply that the king had made a mistake. So if something's going to happen, it has to be a workaround. I was thinking of this uh, while studying with a pair of headphones in my ears 
that have the capabilities of canceling noise. Now, they're not canceling the noise because while I'm listening uh, in relative peace, my children who I'm canceling out aren't canceled to my wife who's not wearing the headphones, right? But in my ears, an opposing sound wave acoustically cancels out what I'm hearing around me. Something similar has to be done. Another law has to be written to counteract, to oppose, such that one has no advantage over the other. And stalemate or cancellation is uh, the end result. By the time we get here, a lot has changed. Uh, Estates have changed hands. Signet rings have changed hands. But it hasn't changed the edict. And months down the road the Jews still face a dire problem. So Esther, as we get to verse 3, we learn she must speak to the king again. Do you notice how the golden scepter showed up again? This is as bad as it was the first time she had to go in. She, she could die for this. If he doesn't extend the golden scepter, same rules. You just don't go to talk to the king without permission. Well, he does extend the scepter and he does listen to her. And she has yet to fail to move the king. She has a perfect record in that avenue. So when you get to verse 3, you see how she goes about this. It's different. The times before with the two feasts and the the two, I'll tell you later, she seemed very cool, calm, collected, calculated, no emotion. Here, lots of emotion. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman. He extends the scepter. He says, again, basically, to, to what is it? Look at what she does in verse 5. She had used two ifs in the first two rounds, a third if in that last round we saw. There's four ifs, basically. Depending on your translation, it's implied with some translations. If it pleased the king... If I found favor in his sight, if the thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes, and then she spills the beans. Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman. And then she follows by saying, How can I bear to see the calamity? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? So if we try to add it all up and understand the position she's in, understand the position the king's in, she is asking him to revoke the unrevocable. It can't be done. She's asking the impossible. Technically. So that, again, a, a, some sort of workaround has to happen. But look how she stirs a mixture of flattery and coyness. This is masterful. She alternates between phrases emphasizing the king's right to do as he wishes with phrases that draw his attention to her desire to please him. That's before they ask. Look at it another way. Two of the ifs dealt with uh, whether the matter was acceptable to the king. The other two ask if Esther herself was acceptable to the king. Now, some I've heard in commentaries say that this is... uh, Precise method to butter one's spouse up. Use uh, at your leisure, mileage may vary. 
and I'm thinking, I, I, don't, I don't see that. What I see is a woman who has gained her freedom, her life back. Mordecai's as well. As far as her life and her father, everything's great, but all her people. She's watched this king, who shouldn't surprise us, really is concerned with little other than affects him personally. And she goes to the same risk to save others. And, and this is one of those, you're going to see reversals all over the place here. Previous chapter, you had Haman at her feet begging and weeping for his own life alone. Now we're reading of Esther at the feet of the king begging and weeping not for her life but for the life of her people. It's quite a contrast and they stack up as we keep reading. Again, no mention of right or wrong here because those categories don't register with the empire or with the king. She can't say it's wrong for you to do this. Basically what she's saying is uh, how can I appeal to his self-interest and if I can convince him the truth that this will kill me to watch my people be killed, then maybe it matters enough to the king because it matters to me that he'll do something about it. So her people's fate hang upon the king's response to her on a personal level. It's a bad day to be a Jew with everything riding on how the king feels about his queen. But that seems to be the size of it. Verse 7, King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai, and you almost wonder if he's saying, have I not done enough already? I've given Esther the house of Haman. They hanged him on the gallows because he laid hands on the Jews. That's a big deal. And then you have uh, a comma there, actually a period. Verse 8 begins with the word but, transition. You may write as you please regarding the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. We've seen him do this already. But it was Haman he gave his ring to and basically said, do what you see best. I trust you with it. Write my name on it. I'm good. It's almost comical, the similarities between the two. It's the same signet ring. It's basically the same statement. It's the same Open highway to write whatever you want. There's a major reversal. So they keep stacking up. Power of attorney has been given to Mordecai to draw up a new law as he sees fit. Sign it in the king's name just exactly as he'd done with Haman. And then when you get to verse 9, this is where it gets a little wordy. But there's a reason for that. Chapter 3 was wordy. There's a lot of specifics about how the law was written and the scribes that were involved and how it was translated into lots of languages and then dispersed to all the peoples. So verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at that time. It gives the date there with the third month, 23rd day. It's to be sent out to the satraps from Ethiopia to India, 127 provinces. It's all the same stuff. Verse 11, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city, here's some details, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, their women and children, and plunder their goods. 
That is at least the fourth time we've heard those three words. Destroy, kill, and annihilate. That was in the text of the first edict. That was the words that Esther used to speak in the ears of the king with Haman sitting there right before he was hauled out and executed. This is the exact text. These edicts are mirror images of of one another. And this paragraph from 9 onward almost to the end, about 13 or so, is meant to have you thinking about chapter 3. Only for the purpose of it being understood, these are the same laws just having to do with different angles of the same people group. One to kill them, the other to allow them to defend themselves. So Mordecai's edict was written by the same scribes, sent to the same people, same 127 provinces, same languages, all the same way that Haman's edict was handled. What did it say? Well, what was determined against the Jews the Jews could do against those who determined to do that against them. They could kill those who attacked them along with their families and then plunder them just as their enemies had planned to kill them and their families and plunder them. Now, how many of you like a good dose of Old Testament killing and plundering? Especially in the culture we live in. Sometimes that puts one in a tough spot. Especially when this is not against the Jews this time. This edict is Jews against their enemies. But what do we, what do, we do with this? And in any other place in the Old Testament where it seems that the best words to describe what's being read is holy warfare? Now, one of the commentators that I've used to study... Uh, provided a very helpful thought in in just one line here. The comment was, this text needs to be interpreted as it stands rather than being watered down to accommodate modern moral standards. And what was meant by that is, no, you you take that and, 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 and what was meant was, listen, You have to read this old ancient Hebrew literature the way old ancient Hebrews wrote it from the context that old ancient Hebrews lived with the old ancient Hebrew ways of thinking. They lived on the rule called an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. To try to take American modern morals and push them back into history and then evaluate these people by that can give you a contrast in the difference between people groups and epochs and ages, but you can't revise the history backwards. This is how they did this. This is how they saw this. And really, if you think about eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, it's kind of like, you know, you break my toy, I break yours. Now, parents get in and say, "We, we don't need to be breaking toys, but it really settles things in a sandlot sometimes. It's the most simplistic way to look at things with a cap on the top. An eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth. 
it doesn't say ten eyes for one eye or ten teeth for... It's not an excuse to go get even plus anything else. That's the way the Old Testament looked at these things. Now, if that's tough to swallow, the idea of, of uh, us understanding the way ancient Hebrews thought, think about how ancient Persians would have thought or what ancient Hebrews and Persians would have thought about the way we handle things. What would they have done with a Bernie Madoff? Put him in a place where he'd rather not be until he dies well-fed, maybe with television? No. He would be working if for $2 a day, that's $2 back in someone's pocket that he robbed. That's how these people would have handled that. That's not the way we handle things. But we need to be fair with the way they handled things based on the way God told them to handle things and the way we handle things based on the way God told us to handle them and how we do that now as a people group who largely are not believers in the contents of this book. All that to say these are different circumstances. In their minds... This had to be straightened out. And that is how they straightened it out. If you look about the part having to do with uh, women and children here, a clear reading can kind of help you with that too because as you read it from which translation, it's hard to say, okay, they were trying to kill you and your children so you can fight back or if they attack you, you can fight back and kill their women and children. That is a difficulty in interpreting where the emphasis is in the Hebrew text. But for that thinking, I thought this was helpful. It was only the armed forces that the Jews were now empowered to act against. Correct? Um, That is a Bible that's reading itself. Because <laughs> I heard what it said. I've done that one time myself as well. It's a little button in the corner. And once it's pushed, it does what it thinks you want. <laughs> but let me read this to you. It was only the armed forces that the Jews were now empowered to act against in this edict. How many armed forces do you know of that involve women and children usually they're left at home so similarly they aren't given warrant to attack but only to gather for self defense so there seems to be no authorization for indiscriminate killing but only those who attacked them and I don't know how many women and children would be doing the attacking now others say this is an age old thing and the Agagite part of Haman's name goes way back to bad blood between a, a, a war between the Jews and a people that had attacked them and God told to wipe them out. They weren't wiped out so now the problem still exists and on this day when their edict is in force they will try to kill the Jews and their women and children and take their stuff and some believe that this says you have full rights to end this once for all like you should have way back 
but I'm not so sure that the text gives us what we need to say that's exactly or absolutely what that means. But don't you think we can kind of understand how this works? I mean, if you go back to Narnia and Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, if there's an evil group of people who have threatened harm to another group of people and are powerful enough to destroy them, and there's a situation where you can straighten that out and life is preserved, you would think that to be a good thing. We respond to this when it's fixed, disaster averted. Everything is now okay. So verse 15, here's the summary of the chapter. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. This is the guy who sat in the king's gate. And after the first decree or edict, he had sackcloth and ashes on, mourning and hollering, making a scene. Totally different now. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Boy, they haven't had any of that so far. That's what I titled the message. Light and gladness and joy and honor to these people that Haman said it's not in the king's interest to let live. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness among the Jews, feasts and a holiday. But look at the last part. We'll come back to this. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. And to declare yourself a Jew is to not be a Jew. The people at large, it seems here, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. They're, they're now, it's now cool to be a Jew. It seems so let's just stack up a few more of these reversals. The first decree resulted in the Jews fasting and mourning. The following decree, they rejoice with the first non-Jewish public perplexed when the first ruling came down. Now with the second one, they joined the Jews in celebration. And it seems in both cases, with both edicts, try this one on, the people at large knew better what was good for the kingdom than the king did. Imagine that. The guy who lives in the ivory tower doesn't know what's best for everyone in regularville. And one final element here. The mirror image reversal of these events. Who was it that for years pretended not to be a Jew? Esther. And now you've got hundreds or thousands pretending to be a Jew. Now, I don't know that it's ever good to pretend to be something you're not. Uh, I don't know that these would be, uh, you know, upstanding Jews, the, the ones that were just pretending. You know, we had words like for folks like that on the playground, too. We called them posers. Just because you got those shoes doesn't mean you can ride that guy's skateboard. Come on. Maybe in time they can brush up on their skills. But it does seem intriguing. And there are times where the world might think it might look good to 
turn over a new leaf or find religion. And I don't know that it's ever good in, in any other cases than to save one's life or in times of warfare to people who don't, do not deserve the truth to hide who we are. We've, we've learned all this on the way through. But the situation as it exists now, having moved through these verses, there would be nine months before these edicts would come into effect. And the citizens of the empire knew both versions. So there's nine months to figure out, okay, what are we going to try? And whose stuff are we going to take? And are we going to be the enemy of the Jews? Or are we going to be friends of the Jews? Or are we going to act like we're Jews ourselves? That's for nine months. But it looks like they get a nine-month start on quite a party. All the horrors of the cloud of death hanging over the Jews since Haman's edict was passed are now effectively over. They're not doomed without at least a fight. There may be a fight, but they can defend themselves. Mourning has turned to joy. It's time to rejoice. I have to confess that in different times this week, on different days, your pastor and music pastor both came to the conclusion that cool in the gang might be appropriate at this point. The songs celebrate. We're trying to pick songs. I'm upstairs. All right, what, what would go with this? And that's what pops in my head. And I, I kind of felt bad about it. And then I go talk to David the next day. And guess what he says out loud? Cool in the gang. Celebrate. But that song, it, it, it does a grand job of putting together a feeling that you can't be quiet about that might even make you want to dance in response if the groove feels good. I think these people had a party. Uh, one of the biggest problems in... Uh, Stiff and starched churches are what to do with the places in the Psalms where it says that the people danced. Because it's a real problem. You can't have dancing in churches or schools or living rooms without chaperones. Right? I mean, we get into, we can have too much fun or get into big trouble. I think this is every bit deserving of all the drama you might want to associate with the people who thought they might be dead in nine months now will no longer look at life that way. Um, the Jews had fasted, and they seemed to have a good reason for that. Now they rejoice because things seem to have been straightened out. It's time to party. One question, though, I, th I thought might be worth pondering, because it's true in this book, I think it's true in our lives, and then we'll ask the question, what do we make of all this? Ever notice how much of our behavior is driven by perceptions about how things are going to be? And then the reality of the situation never really pans out to that tune. Um... If, if, if COVID was the best exercise to look at that from any angle, what do we expect 
Uh, how do we take care of ourselves physically? Uh, what do we do with our money in the market? Uh, do we hoard food or not? Uh, I remember I joked about riding down the road and seeing the roll of toilet paper on the side of the road for the first time wondering if I should go back and get it. <laughs> it, it got bad, right? But we never ran out. I don't know if anybody did run out. Walmart ran out, but nobody ran out. And the same is true with this story. What is different other than Esther, who got quite an upgrade, and Mordecai, who got quite an upgrade, and Haman, who got quite a downgrade, for the vast majority of people, what changed? Did the first edict change anything? Ultimately, no. Did the second edict change anything? Ultimately, no. The truth was, at the end of the story, God straightened it out, despite any of the players in the story, but using many of the players in the story for those ends. Again, it's the mystery of human responsibility and God's sovereignty. But most of the credit and the celebration is hung on one to the exclusion of the other. Here's the question I want to ask. What right do we have to celebrate? The following question would be, well, I suppose that would weigh in the balance of the basis of what you're celebrating about. All right? They were upset because of Haman. Mourning. Fasting. Haman's dead. Mordecai's in charge. Now we rejoice. How likely is it that King Xerxes is always going to like Mordecai? Or that Mordecai dies of old age and somebody else gets the ring that he's so happy to give to someone else and write whatever law they want to? Uh, History tells us that Xerxes was assassinated by his own men. Mordecai saved him from one round of that. Another one proved to be his end. So, is it as secure as the security and the faith of the people in the government of Persia? Yeah. Would you have a big party, medium party, little party, or no party if, say, your future rested in the hands of the United States Congress? Are they better or worse than Persia? I think they're much better. The power's kind of spread out, and it's getting more slower and more grinding as we go and spread out into a more polarized group of people. But then again, how much of that has to do with our future? And will reality justify the worrying or the partying that we do one way or another? I don't know. It has a lot to do with your temperament. But here's where I want to give you something that I think can help you solve this equation. Answering the question, do we have a right to rejoice? When Jesus left heaven and came to this world in the form of a baby born in Bethlehem, what was the news from the angels to the shepherds in the field? And read that to you. The angels said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great 
joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now this baby who would die as a man would take on man's ultimate problem, his sins against his father, and by his own death in our place, straighten out the divide between God and man forever. Now that's just not one king and one dynasty or one century. That is all of eternity for those who trust in Christ's work through faith that is given to them as a gift. So God had straightened out the problems of the exiled Jews under Rome, or not Rome, the rule of Persia. But that was only on his way to straighten out man's ultimate problem, his estrangement with their creator over their sins against a holy God. So I'm going to go on record by saying this. If the end of your story is straightened out, then you can party if you want, or you can worry if you want. It's straightened out. The story of Esther is God straightening out the lives of those in Persia. But the whole book together is Him straightening out the lives of those His Father gave Him. And how does that go? No one is able to snatch them out of His hand My father is greater than me and no one will snatch them out of his hand. Paul would say, no no, no height nor depth, nothing can separate you from the love of God. So if you're looking at your basis for which to rejoice and you find the word of God and the plan of redemption credible, then you have all the right to rejoice that anyone's ever had the right to rejoice. And maybe this is why the Jews had such fine parties and danced before the Lord who was swirling over the tabernacle in a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud. They could see it in front of their face. I'd like to be able to think that we could see more clearly than they. But at times, we turn on the news and you'd act like someone wrote an edict and we're all going to die. So what if they did? We're not all going to die. We're going to live forever. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. All that has been straightened out. And where that sounds like someone who just might want an excuse to party, it does carry you through the worst of it too. Because anyone who's lived long enough knows that life involves pain. It has its measure of suffering. It has its goodbyes, its disappointments. So we'll end where I started. I don't know what people do without Jesus. I don't know what people do without a good church full of people that Jesus has changed. Because on our way to that eternal rejoicing party, eternity, there's cancer. And there's Alzheimer's. Both of that affect 
the Mooneyham home. There's ALS. There's Parkinson's. There's divorce. There's unemployment. There's relationships that it seems, with all the best efforts involved, seem to crumble and fall through your fingers. You disappoint people. You watch their faces. You hurt them deeply. How do you get through that without all types of complexes where you begin to tell you that you are no good and you believe it? Because Jesus left heaven to straighten that out too. But it can't be straightened out completely until you're with him in his house, in his arms as it were. And all the rest of the stuff is left behind where he dries your tears. And all that stuff is gone for good. So yeah, I think... That's something to rejoice over. My dad used that term, straightened out, in two ways. One was, did you get that stuff straightened out? This was kind of when I worked with him. But when I was much younger, it was kind of uh, aimed. If I have to, I will straighten you out. So my question today is, which is it? Has the Lord straightened, sorted your affairs? Or are you in need of straightening out and sorting? The scripture lays it all out. It's as simple as faith. I can't do this. He has done it for me. I trust him with my eternal security. I repent of my sins and in faith trust Him for life. We're going to sing here at the end. I want to pray first. And uh, this was what David and I thought appropriate. Though we had conversations about other things. But hymn number 66 is to God be the glory. Great things He had done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. We're going to sing that, having understood the truth of what we see here in Esther. But let's pray first. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage of scripture, a story, real people, real time, real trouble, real fasting, real sorrow, real joy. When things turned around, Lord, we ask that you help us understand you. You as the God who straightens, God who fixes, the God who forgives, the God who repairs, the God who embraces, the God who loves and gives. And Lord, may we have somebody to tell sometime this week what you've done for us and that you can do that for them too. We thank you for our time in church today with each other but under the sound of your word. Seal it to our hearts. And Lord, fill our praises. Inhabit them as we sing these words to you in thanksgiving for these things you've done. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.